Hello, everyone, and welcome to Go Write Yourself. Uh, today, we have uh, Michael Rechtenwald. Uh, he the great Michael Rechtenwald. <laughs> the Rechtenwald. Uh, he entered into the world of writing with poetry, but has found success in the genres of rhetoric and academic engagement. He earned his PhD from Carnegie Mellon University. He's published over 11 books, uh, had essays published in many academic journals. He's known for his swift and passionate arguments. And Allen Ginsberg once called him the mad mystic from Pittsburgh. Uh, mm. Hello, Dr. Rechtenwald. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Excellent. Great. Now, uh, in my research uh, of you prior to this uh, podcast, uh, I discovered you kind of, uh, you once went to the School of Disembodied Poetics. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that was the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics at Naropa Institute. And the uh, chair of that uh, program was Allen Ginsberg. And Allen Ginsberg, I, I was an apprentice to Allen Ginsberg uh, during my time there. And uh, so that was, a, a, uh, yeah, that was a friendship with him. Yeah, I um, had a long uh, friendship with Allen Ginsberg from, from that time onward, and even somewhat before that, through letters. Mm. We had an epistolary relationship before I oh, actually wow. joined the school. That's incredible. I know. Uh, I know Ginsburg was famous for. Uh, I think it, his home in Florida, maybe, or his his mailbox is famous for receiving uh, just tons and tons of of poetic letters from unsolicited, you know, writers. Um, and you actually had. Uh, a little uh, pen pal relationship with him. Yes. Uh, I still have those letters and uh, they're very interesting. I lost the first letter he sent me uh, in which he invited me to come study with him at Naropa. And, uh, but I have the rest of them and uh, they, I, we continued a relationship long after I left there. And, um, I interviewed him uh, once for a radio show. Also, I wrote a eulogy for him when he passed. And uh, I have... That was very uh, sad. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was uh, a kind of a student of his uh, school of poetry at the time. And, uh, but not entirely, because I never let go of some of my own predilections. And I, <laughs> right. I don't think I found my voice poetically until my 30s actually i was in my early 20s when i studied with him but i didn't find my poetic voice till my 30s and that's when i shrugged off um a lot of these influences and started to find what i would call like an inner voice and it would be uh, interesting to know what you think you learned from ginsburg and in what ways you deviate and because mm, a lot of young writers tend to go for the beat poets early on in their careers. Right. It's a very easy access to poetry. Uh, but I found it to be, in the end, pretty sloppy. And uh, there were, uh, you know, when I look back on Ginsburg. So did Ginsburg, work, apparently. Yes, that's right. He saw it as sloppy, too, and he did it on purpose. Um, 
but uh, I became more interested in precision later, and uh, but also more uh, of a lyrical voice uh, in my poetry when I was writing poetry regularly. Uh, but um, I, I, as you mentioned, uh, I'm more or less after I've published, well, I've published two books of poetry. Um, by the way, I have 12 books. <laughs> oh, it's okay. I think I said over, over 11. 11. That's okay. true. All right. <laughs> over 11. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Well, that's good. Two, um, two of them are poetry. Excellent. Uh, that's That's kind of. Is that how you kind of got into it? Well, I mean, you said you didn't really find your voice, uh, you know, until your 30s, but you were largely, uh, you know, in that school and writing in that kind of genre um, to begin yeah. with. What What do you think? What do you think brought you out of it? What do you think uh, uh, was the thing that kind of uh, switched your switched your focus? Well, let me first say what got me into it. Uh, oh, oh, yes, please. That too. Uh, I was a seminarian in high school. That is, I went away to a uh, Catholic Capuchin monastery, and I lived in oh, wow. a seminary that was attached to a Capuchin monastery for two years, during which time I started writing poetry, because to join, to go to this seminary, I left what was then my first girlfriend, and uh so I started to write poetry uh, to her. And, um, you know, uh, because, see, we had to be completely separated from uh, what were then called girls. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't communicate with her. I wasn't you weren't allowed to write letters to girls. You weren't allowed to talk to girls. You weren't allowed to cross their path on the seminary grounds. Wow. So it left you quite a bit of longing. So I started writing poetry out of romantic longing, really. And then uh, I uh, Cohen always thought that's where poetry came from. Yeah. Yeah. But then like when I started reading, uh, somebody gave me on my birthday uh, when I was in college, my second year in college, somebody gave me a copy of Allen Ginsberg's book, How, H-O-W-L. Mm. And I became immediately engrossed. Uh, I particularly liked the fact that he was so irreverent and uh, that he mixed so many um, different things into the genre that I hadn't thought really possible to do. For example, political, social but also mixed in with personal ramblings and uh, some very psychological elements. And uh, so I yeah, found that... his work kind of spanned that it was, it was personal, but it was also, it, it also reached a lot farther than that. And I imagine you, you, you thought it was only one thing until you were exposed to this. Yeah. I, I thought poetry you know, to, to heretofore, the, the poetry that was popular at the time, this was the 70s, late 70s, was focused basically on what I like to say, my father's big toe. And that is to say, it was all about like, people were talking about very intimate only things. You got to remember, this was the Sylvia Platt era. 
And so mm. people were talking about very intimate, you know, personal elements. And this was the, the era of the confessional poem. But, and so that's what I thought poetry was restricted to. But with Ginsburg, I saw that he, you know, he was uh, talking about very broad socio-political, cultural elements, like how, you know, and it sort of draw you, drew you out of of that uh, that intimate realm into into being able to kind of expand the way you wrote poetry. Yeah, I started to make uh, poetry inclusive of uh, like uh, social commentary and things like that, and mm. uh, but also uh, history and war and different things like that. I started writing about and. Uh, but I tied it into some personal things. Like, for example, when I was uh, 20, I think I wrote a poem called Ed Neff, which I have no, no longer in my possession. Mm. It was a poem about a uh, World War II veteran who, uh, who everyone made fun of in my neighborhood because he was what they would call retarded, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah. And uh, one day he burnt his own house down. Uh, wow. I think accidentally, but I wrote about what must have happened to him in World War II. And in fact, he did have like a uh, piece of shrapnel lodged in his brain. Oh, so, wow. So that was like a topic that I wrote about, uh, different things like that. And uh, so what got me out of it was uh, I just started, I started to, uh, when I went to graduate school, and and during that time, I started to uh, engage in more polemics. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I noticed that I was much better at writing essays than I was at poetry. Okay. Uh, yeah, because most of your work is done kind of in prose. Or, yes. Uh, and you, you were writing to make a point, and you thought that you were a better writer of... Um, you know of argument you you what what were you trying to convince the world of at the time when you started <laughs> this, this is very interesting since i am currently a, a a presidential candidate for the nomination in the libertarian party but i was actually found myself on those old usenet websites arguing with libertarians at the time i was Amazing. actually yeah i was arguing for socialism and uh, <laughs> and now wow, a bit of a turn there. Now I'm one of the fiercest, I think, critics of socialism. There is. Uh, I don't. I mean, I've had five books that effectively attack it at one point or another in various ways. But uh, and when you were working on on that kind of argument, is this is this sort of in a way where you had a thesis and you were kind of expanding out from uh from like a central idea or, or were you just sort of like feeling your way uh through the experience trying to trying to you know pull everything together as it were well i had a thesis and uh you see this was also the time i was in graduate school when i went back to graduate school for a brief for 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 a period there i stopped writing poetry and started writing academic essays and then also, like I said, on these Usenet websites, what was called Usenet, I don't know what the hell to call it now. These were these open fora where you could go on 
and uh, you had to know some coding because you couldn't get to these web these things without writing in something. I don't, I can't remember how it worked, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and that uh, that kind of killed the uh, poetry for a while. And then I took a course which is very interesting in, in this connection called the construction of authorship. This was in graduate school in my MA studies, and this course was all about debunking the author. Uh, in other words, Roland Bart. Yeah, Roland Bart off the death of the author Foucault. That what was is great. An author, uh, and then all this critical historical stuff and cultural studies type material about uh, the the professor was named Martha Woodmansey, and her whole uh, her whole like mission in life was to cut the legs out from under the author construct, as she called it. Uh-huh. And, uh you know to say that it was all effect of some uh economic and legal regime established uh throughout the i guess six, 17th century into the 18th century and uh to prop up this iconic character known as the author but you know that kind of really uh that had a really sort of a devastating effect i've written about this in my book springtime for snowflakes that had a very devastating effect on my ambitions to be an author as such because i thought it made the whole enterprise seem to be well nobody according to her the author and foucault also the author operates as an ideological construct and nobody wants to knowingly be under an ideological construct right uh, that's so. like that sounds like extreme Marxism in the sense that Marx said, you know, if you were bourgeois, then you would typically have a certain way of viewing the world, and if you were a proletariat, you had a certain. But it was actually the means of production, like that, we're talking through you, um, to make you represent your class interests. Yeah. So th- this sounds like an even more extreme version of that. Yeah, that came down to like Bart saying that there is no such thing as originality. All there are is a tissue of quotations. Uh, the yeah. author's dead, or Foucault, who said that the author was not the originator of anything. He was actually the production of text rather than the producer of text, that the author was merely a product of textuality, and that right. the text constructed the text made the author, not the author of the text. Okay, but I mean, there's, a, there's, it's not complete, uh, as you know, it's not completely untrue. It's maybe to like, because if I didn't have the experiences I have, I wouldn't have learned the things I've learned and I wouldn't, and they wouldn't be informed the way that I write. However, it seems like too extreme. There is always a truth in these things. The truth is there would be no authors without language. Right. But that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as an author or that the author is a pure construct of, te- of text, of textuality. That yeah. sounds silly. But but what yeah. I would say to Roland Bart is, see if he's going to come out and say, um, there's no such thing as originality, you know, there's just a bunch of quotes. How can you possibly know if that's true or not? Because you're just saying that because you're bound, you know, it's... it's um, it's uh, logical. The argument itself is a performative contradiction. Yeah, that's right. And I also noted, and I noticed, I noted this in my book, Springtime for Snowflakes, that both he and Foucault 
signed their names to their essays. Right. That seems a bit exactly. ironic. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and I'm sure they wouldn't have been happy if somebody else started publishing their uh, publishing their own, you know, their works under a different name. So, Correct. Yeah, they're, like, they're hypocrites and performative contradictions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Something that's nice to think about conceptually, but uh, uh, has bigger consequences when it goes into practice. But then while I was studying uh, graduate school, I was also working at uh, another university, Penn State, uh, and I met a poet there named Diana George, Diana Hume George, uh, H-U-M-E George, Diana Hume George, and she was a poet, and uh, she tried to, uh, I met her, and we I was telling her about this course and what it was doing to me, kind of deconstructing my authorial personality, and she encouraged me to keep writing poetry, so I did. And so I produced a whole lot of poetry after this. In fact, it became a book called Breach, B-R-E-A-C-H. And uh, uh, there's, you know, I probably wrote my best poetry after this stuff. Because at this point now, I was, uh, well, I tried out some of the techniques, too, of uh, language poetry, for example. I don't know if you've ever heard um... of that. What's his name with all the all the the semicolons and the? Um... Yeah, I think one of the main things about language poetry is the poet the lines are supposedly found rather yeah. than written. So you take a bunch of found phrases and patch them together into a new combination. So I did a lot of that called language poetry, but then I found it to be just as it's you know, as contrived or more contrived than a, a typical lyrical poem. It sounds a bit like data. Yeah, it's kind of dataistic, but it's not so uh, anti-art as dataism. Yeah. Uh, because it does aim at creating something that uh, is, you know, original or, and also kind of like uh, elevated to some extent. Uh but you can pull this from other places and kind of make it your own. Yeah, I used to go on Facebook, just take the posts of different people. If they were short, I'd grab a sentence, then grab another one, then grab another one and keep going. And then I'd put them all together. And uh, yeah, if the author ever died anywhere, it's in memes. Yeah. Or it's That's a different, type, a different yeah. type of author. Different. Yes. Different type of author. So I, I remember once we were speaking at an event um, together and you put together a talk. Uh, we were hanging out a bit before it. And I remember one of the things you said to me is, uh, I'm not really a speaker primarily. I'm, I'm, more, I'm more of a writer. So like I like to do it this way because to me, the way that you put something across, I'm paraphrasing you, of course, Mike, like um, the sentence is important. The way that you put it across is important. Like, um, can you s- s- tell me a little bit about that? What that means to you? How you well, learned it, and how you're developing it. Writing has a different time signature, uh-huh. and, and under writing, you have more control of the time that's necessary to put different phrases together, and so this gives you more control over the uh, artificial uh, of language. 
-hmm. And uh, speaking, especially if it's extemporaneous and not reading from, you know, a text, you're, you're actually in a different, you're under pressure to produce text on the spot without kind of the recursive nature of writing, which allows you to go back and refigure things and rephrase things and to uh, have time to, re you know, to make it exactly like you want it to be. Whereas under speaking, you're, you're already uttering the phrases and it's too late by the time you want to eyes, <laughs> it's over. You know, you, you can always say something else, but you might say something that you didn't want to say, or you wish, you wish you could have said it slightly differently, but it's out of your mouth already. So there's less time to control language under speech. That's true. I, I like how you say that language has a, or writing has a different time signature. Uh, and comparing it to music like that, I find that very apt. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know how else quite to put it. Uh, well, I, I think it's true if you're, if you're, you know, in the same way that uh, rappers might rap, you know, you, you've got people that write out their, their whole things, and then you've got people that just do it in the street. And freeform, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you could say that I'm not as good a freeform rapper as I am. Uh, <laughs> as, a, as a prepared artist. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, so what... there's an art to that, too. Go ahead, Anthony. I'm sorry. Not at all. I'm just wondering, then, what do you think makes discursive writing good to you? Like, well, there, that's two different questions, like objectively and subjectively. What, what do you think makes it good and what do you like? And also, third part to that question, what do you strive for in your writing? Well, that's great. Great questions. Okay. What I think makes great writing is things is writing that surprises you in some way. Oh, well, that's key, good. The mm. key to the key to writing is to have people read the next word. And so what keeps people reading the next word after the word you've written? So how what keeps people reading the next word in what you've written? And I think what keeps people reading is some kind of aleatory or some sort of surprise element that uh, keeps them engaged by virtue of the fact that they uh, they have been confronted with something in a way that is expressed in a way that is novel and that they weren't expecting exactly. So I think surprise is the key. And part of that is language in terms of vocabulary, um, ideation like the idea that you're coming across with and i think also a kind of uh recursive uh commentary on what you've said so that you refigure what you've said in a different way and re reconceptualize it even for the uh, for the reader so that they see it you say it and then you say it in other words some other thing uh, so other ways of seeing the same idea. So, you know, for me, writing is like about having uh, the utmost control over language that you can imagine and then being able to marshal it in a way that makes it in almost inexorable that the, the reader has to keep going. 
I find that interesting uh, that you said, you know, the surprise factor, because I've, I've heard a lot of artists talk about uh, with art in general, whether it be, you know, painting or sculpture or, or what have you, that probably the biggest thing you can do is, is like subvert someone's expectations and, uh, and find that which, you know, is what grabs them. And I think, uh, I think you're right as well with, um, with reiterating in, in different words uh, your message, because I, I think that I think it's the sign of being a good artist to to have your message kind of uh, reverberate throughout uh, whatever medium it is you're using. Yeah. Uh, like I've been reading recently the prose uh, essays of uh, John Milton, who was a, a master at uh at, oh uh, yes, very very complex writer. Yeah, and, uh, and there's never a sentence. Now, of course, part of this has to do with the fact that some of the language is antiquated. But even even then, I think what what really engaged people was uh, sort of the surprise tactics that he uses all the time, and uh, the way that uh, he is able to uh, unsettle the reader by virtue of saying something that seems um, not exactly what he they expected to see. And uh, so that's what I try to do. And uh, you make some kind of statements that then you can actually support uh, through reasoning and evidence. But, you know, I think mostly for my cases, I'm not like a, a kind of writer that stacks up a bunch of empirical data. That's not what I do. Um, my I'm I'm writing at the level of, uh, ideas and uh, I'm trying to convince you of ideas through through language and I'm not trying to convince you through like uh, marshalling all kinds of uh, evident you know like empirical data to support it well I think but, it's easier to change someone's mind especially nowadays in that way uh, than it is to than it is to bring all kinds of evidence to bear unfortunately re- rather that might be an unfortunate thing but um, I think a lot of people uh, have their minds won in that in that sense much easier nowadays. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I don't I don't really care what 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 uh, I don't I don't think about the reader that much, except uh, I guess what I'd write is kind of like what's called writerly texts. Mm. And a, a writerly text is a text that's more concerned about the authorial voice and it's uh, it's intention than a readerly text which is uh effectively gauged for the audience and uh precipit you know pre- it, it it tries to anticipate the audience rather than just uh developing its own uh, logic outwards mm. that that's something i've never heard before i i wasn't aware that uh People had those two types of perspectives on writing, but I, I can see that now. I think a it's lot of people, yeah. By that, is it's important to you as the writer how you put the text. Like you want it to feel right to you as the way that you've expressed things. Well, right. I right. wanted to. I wanted to feel right to me. That's the key. And and I want to enjoy it. That's the other thing. If I, I don't get any enjoyment 
out of uh, just writing sort of like placid prose that's simply, you know, uh, makes a point without any kinds of uh, explosions on the page. I think if you if you get enjoyment out of it and you have good taste, Anthony has said several times that uh, if if you have good taste, you'll be a good artist. Um, I think that's eventually. A, I think eventually, it takes us quite, yeah, because it takes us quite a lot of time as writers to be able to reach our own standards. Sometimes I think. Oh yeah, and I'm, that, I'm never happy. I'm never happy. So I never have reached you, my own standard, never once. Do you do you think that you've improved as a writer, and if so, what have you learned that makes you better than you used to be? Um, Sharing your secrets. Yes, one <laughs> one tip for our audience. Uh, I would say you know, uh, uh, well, have I improved, and in what ways? Uh, I guess uh, uh, I've improved with. Uh, the uh i guess i guess what i would say is that my writings improved with more sharpness more focus more clarity you know when mm-hmm. i was younger i was like uh you you could you know some of the times you you could skid off the page with the, you, you 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 could hide your plane when you were reading what i was saying now mm-hmm. i think there's more friction and there's more traction in the prose so that you're not the reader's not hydroplaning off the off the page they're actually getting some traction and uh it bites deeper into the topic and uh doesn't uh glo- you know i, I don't what i don't it, 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 you know there's a lot of people that just throw words on the page and uh they haven't really considered the the uh, the aesthetic and and the and the sort of the gravitational uh, pool of what they're doing. Whereas I think writing that works the best, for me anyway, is writing that has a gravitational pull that pulls the reader in rather than letting them slide as they read. Right. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I think think you can take that. Um, Well, uh, it's been certainly a wonder talking to you. Do you have any more questions, Anthony? Yeah. Well, I was thinking that there were some things that Mike said that he wouldn't mind uh, talking about, um, like forecasting statements and mapping and what you call the big idea. And I was wondering if you want to say anything about those concepts that you're like interested in. Sure. Like forecasting statements are kind of like... Uh statements in early in an essay that uh, sort of to give the reader some kind of an idea of where things things are going. Yes, I use them as well to point their attention. Like, this is the way that you should contextualize what you're about to read. Yeah, exactly. It, it gives them a roadmap uh, as to where you're headed. So that, I mean, even though I've said surprise is an interesting and important element of reading or writing, I mean, and reading, um, I think that you need to be, in order to drive home an argument, there has to be some sense that the uh, that the reader knows where on earth they are to begin with and where they're headed in some sense. And I think That's the surprise you're talking about is a different kind of surprise. Yes. 
Yeah, yeah. that's so I taught writing for 25 years in university, and uh, I emphasized forecasting a lot because students are often, uh, uh, I would say they bottom load their essays and that you don't know what the ideas are going to be until you get to them. And uh, I think it's important to start to tell people like what kind of ideas, what kind of thoughts you're going to present before you start you know, like pop it on them later, like a, a kind of like that kind of surprise is uh, is very unsettling to the reader. And it's, it's not useful. It's, it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, it's almost they're like they're getting warmed up to, to talk about it themselves instead of giving it to the reader. Right. Well, oftentimes this is often written after you've written the essay or the book or whatever. Oh. You know, this this comes last uh, sometimes, I think, because, you don't. I think writing is a form of exploration and discovery. Yeah, it's a heuristic process whereby you learn something about what you might think and what you do think and what you could think. And then uh, once you've learned that, you've got to go back and tell the reader, like, where the hell you're going in some sense. Right. Totally. Is, um, it affects the order of the information like oh okay now I've got a wider context to put in what I knew when I began so that means the end changes and that means the beginning needs to change yes absolutely so recur- this is what I mean about the recursive process of writing too it's, it's wonderfully recursive because this, it's stationary there's a stationary aspect to it it holds still. And anyway, it looks like we're running out of time. Are we going to do another session or are we going to wrap it up? Um, if you'd like to come back on, I'm sure I'm sure we'd like to have you at some point in the future. Yeah, let's do that. Great. All right. That sounds great. We've learned a lot from you, uh, Mr. Rechtenwald. It was great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Great talking to you. Thanks. Nice to catch up with you, Mike. Yep. You too, Anthony. <laughs> All right. Awesome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.